Romans 8, Exodus 34, Psalm 103. One of the things we ask often when we talk about God as our Heavenly Father is we like to ask what has been your experience uh, in your life when it comes to your Father. I know that sounds like we're getting very, you know, psychological here. Uh, But it's an important question. As we think through a new believer coming to Christ and then being introduced to God as their Heavenly Father, we realize that we're only going to understand God as our Heavenly Father through whatever lens of experience we have had with our own relationships. And so that's important to recognize because what we don't want to do, as we learned a little bit in Equip today, we don't want to take our earthly experience or our conception of an earthly relationship and just project that upon God as if He's a bigger version of our earthly experience. In fact, that gets things completely opposite. Uh, God presents himself to us or, or really ordains or institutes uh, uh, the idea of a father and mother and the children uh, really as vague shadows of uh, what he is as our heavenly father. And so we want to make sure that we understand we are made in his image and he's not made in our image. So we don't want to take our experience with our earthly fathers and project that upon God. So what we're going to do this morning is look at some biblical passages that help us see who God is from a biblical perspective, especially in regard to his relationship to us as our Heavenly Father. We're going to start in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Notice how the Spirit is described in verse 15, the Spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption who actually works in us to cry out, Abba, Father. And what does it say? We are the children of God. Adoption was not practiced by the Jews, but it was very common among the Romans. And although children could be adopted and teenagers could be adopted, it was also practiced among adults as well. In fact, adoption in Rome was a useful tool uh, for the emperors who could ensure that their lineage wouldn't end and that their rule wouldn't end, so they could adopt even adult males uh, into their homes. Upon doing so, those males would take on the name, they would have all the rights and privileges of a biological child, and uh, they could actually fall in the line of succession of the empires. And so those lacking biological heirs could ensure that their family tree wouldn't come to an end. Interestingly, Nero was adopted uh, by Emperor Claudius when he was 12 years old. For Paul, that Roman practice of adoption, whereby a family could bring in really an alien child, a child who didn't belong, and then to be treated as if and given all the rights and privileges of a biological child was an excellent metaphor for what God does for each and every one of us. Sometimes it's an insult, right? You ever say that to your sibling? Well, you're the adopted one. Biblically, this is not an insult. Biblically, this is uh, an indication of wonderful privilege, We are adopted into the family of God. We are welcomed into an intimate relationship with the Father. We who were once alienated from God 
have been granted the exact same rights and privileges of a legitimate child. But who is the only begotten Son of God? That's Jesus Christ. As those who are adopted into the family of God, we are granted all the rights and privileges that are really due to Jesus Christ. We are united to Him, and we are granted the rights and privileges that He deserves. Further, through adoption, we are joined with every other believer. We are all siblings and equal siblings. We are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're to treat one another that way. According to Paul, God wants us to be continually assured of this relationship, and so He gives us His Spirit. And so the Spirit is constantly working, testifying to our spirit that we are children of God and brothers and sisters to one another. One of the most unloving things that a father can do to his children is to leave them in a constant state of insecurity. Never knowing if they're truly loved, never really knowing whether or not they're accepted by dad. That's cruel. We thank God that he's the perfect father. And according to Paul, he's gone to great lengths to assure us that we are his beloved children. He's given us the Holy Spirit who leads us to cry. What does it say? Abba, Father. There's a little bit of mystery behind the term Abba. Some believe it's kind of like an Aramaic. Uh, do you know the term onomatopoeia? You know that term? If you're a teacher here, you do. It's the idea of a word that sounds like what it describes. And uh, some believe that's what Abba is. It's the equivalent to like a child saying Dada or Papa. You know if you're a parent how when your child gets to that age, they have all their cooing and gurgling. They don't make any sense. And all of a sudden, in the midst of it, you hear, Mama, Dada. You know how precious that is. Why? Because all of a sudden, uh, the nonsense gives way to words, and not just words, but words of relationship, words of affection. This has the power to melt a parent's heart. Now, others suggest that Abba maybe is, is not meant to capture what that little child says, but it's actually a term of endearment that's used by adults as well. And either way, the fact that the Spirit works in us to cry, Abba, Father, shows us that God the Father wants every one of His children to understand that He has adopted them into a tender, intimate, loving, secure, and privileged relationship. That's true for all of us this morning if we're believers. Unlike so many earthly fathers, our Heavenly Father loves us so much that He wants us to have a continual sense of security in our relationship with Him. He provides that security by giving us His Holy Spirit who works in our hearts, always assuring us that we're part of the family. Paul says the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So as Christians, we need never question our standing before God. Should never bring doubt into our minds. We should never have feelings of insecurity, whether or not God actually loves us. That shouldn't never be a question. He's not at all like earthly fathers who leave their children feeling insecure, unloved, doubtful. Instead, God the Father has adopted us into his family and would have us constantly assured of our standing before him. By the way, if you are a father this morning and you run your household in such a way where your kids never know what their standing is with you because you're angry, uh, you, the way you punish your children is by withholding relationship or withholding affection, you are cruel. Uh, that, that is, frankly, sinful. Uh, you ought to be raising your children up in an understanding way, not provoking them to anger, and so on. And uh, that is absolutely wrong. 
your calling as a dad is to model for your children the love and the mercy and the gentleness of our Heavenly Father. Allow your child, if he gets to that point, to conceive of God as Heavenly Father, that the earthly conception he has of dad or father helps him along the way to properly conceive of whom God is. We can be confident that we have all the rights and privileges of a legitimate child of God. So, so, so when feelings of unworthiness creep in, when we begin to doubt that God truly loves us that way, we can remind ourselves, what? I'm, I'm adopted. You're adopted. Not because we are worthy, but because Jesus Christ is worthy and we're united to him. It's so important to God that we have the security, again, that he actually gives us his spirit to constantly testify to that relationship. So, I suggest to you that we have to know biblically then what God is like. If we want to know what our Heavenly Father is like, we don't look to our earthly dads. Hopefully they've set a good example, but that's not where we go first and foremost. Where do we go first and foremost to know what God is like? His revelation in the Scriptures. So what we're going to look at this morning is Exodus 34, 33 and 34 in just a moment. Because this is a passage where God himself declares through special revelation, this is who I am. What better place to go than a place where God himself, when God says, I'm going to declare to you who I am, and he chooses a handful of descriptions, this is what I'm like. I mean, how precious will this passage be to us then to understand what our Heavenly Father is like? We'll get there in just a second. Let's set some context for Exodus 33 and 34. This text that we're going to see represents an incredible act of mercy by God. An incredible act of mercy on the part of the Lord towards his people. In this context, God has recently delivered the Jews from slavery in Egypt. He sent Moses, remember? dramatic fashion, sends Moses with with, with the shepherd's staff into the most powerful uh, military force on earth at the time to lead uh, his people to freedom. Remember, the Lord sends plagues into Egypt and uh, Israel's Egyptians' oppressors uh, under Pharaoh ultimately, reluctantly let God's people go. Like one massive flock following a shepherd, they stream out of Egypt but then, uh, remember, Pharaoh uh, like immediately regrets his decision, and so he mobilizes his army and he pursues uh, the Jews to the point then where the Jews are trapped between the Egyptian soldiers on one side and the Red Sea on the other. And then the Lord miraculously intervenes. He divides the waters. The children of Israel go through on dry land. The Egyptian army follows. The waters come back, and God destroys the Egyptian army. This, as we've said so many times, and I think we even said last week, The Exodus was intended by the Lord to be that seminal event in Israel's history which sealed their identity as the people of God. It was his redemption of them from slavery and his subsequent defeat of the Egyptian army which should have forever shaped their Jewish identity. They were the people of God, the people of God whom the Lord had redeemed from slavery. They were the people who had been freed from from the oppressive slavery of the Egyptian king and then welcomed into glorious freedom by the king of heaven. 
We know that God intended those events of redemption from slavery to shape Jewish identity because God continually hearkens back to those events when he wants to remind Israel of who he is and who they ought to be. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is who I am, therefore this is who you ought to be. This is who I am, this is what I've done, therefore you ought to serve me. Not only were the Jews God's people by virtue of creation, like all of mankind, but they were God's people by virtue of redemption uh, through the Exodus. Shockingly, however, although this was something that Jews were to never forget, they did forget. They did forget. Sooner than anyone could have imagined, after the Lord conveyed through Moses that the Jews were to build a tabernacle, which is a precursor to the temple, which would serve as a place of worship and a meeting place with God, he calls Moses up on to Mount Sinai. Some of you are very familiar with the story. Some of you aren't. Up there on Mount Sinai, the Lord would deliver to Moses his divine law, that law which should govern and shape his people. And so here Moses goes up the mountain before the Lord, out of the sight of the people, but then astonishing events are unfolding there at the base of the mountain. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 through 4. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has come of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the, the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all, the peop- so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and, they, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You understand what an offense this is? You understand what an act of rebellion this is? When God redeems his people from, from Egypt and uses that as that seminal event to say, uh, this dictates and determines your identity and your relationship with me, and then almost immediately they make something of their own hands and say, this is what brought us out of Egypt. It's astonishing. One might think that the events of the Exodus would leave an indelible mark on the, uh, the minds of the Jews or the hearts of the Jews leading them to live lives of love and obedience towards the God who redeemed them. However, their hearts were so hard and their memories were so short that with Moses gone, they just returned back to the paganism of Egypt. They forsook the Lord, made an idol, gave it credit for the Exodus even. Meanwhile, on the mountain, Moses has no idea what's going on. The Lord tells him. The Lord, angry at the Israelites' rebellion and unfaithfulness, tells Moses, Moses, get down there. Get down there, Moses. So Moses rushes down the mountain. He sees the profane worship. Some indication they might actually even been worship that was sexual in nature, which is drawn out of the paganism from which they came from. Moses rushes down. He's furious. And in his rage, what does he do? He throws the tablets and they break. The tablets which contain the Ten Commandments. Moses then comes down, he destroys the idol, Uh, he makes sure that swift justice is executed upon the rebels. And then in Exodus 32, he says this to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. It's like, look at what you've done, maybe I can go smooth things over with 
Yahweh. Maybe. So I'm going to go up and see if I can make atonement. Well, Moses does find favor in God's, God's sight. With that, he and, and all of Israel, Israel narrowly uh, avoid destruction. However, as a consequence of all of this, the Lord says to Moses, as you go into the promised land, as you go into battle and into war, I'm not going to go with you. If I go with you, the people are so rebellious that I'm going to burst forth in judgment against the people. Well, this was not acceptable to Moses. The task ahead of Moses was too great. Leading a sinful people uh, out who, who were still shaped by the pagan culture in Egypt uh, into battle, uh, I can't do this. And Moses now in God's presence feels completely inadequate for the task ahead of him. Leading a rebellious people into battle against a formidable enemies, surely in Moses' mind spelled defeat. So Moses intercedes for the children, children of Israel once more. The Lord answers Moses' prayer, promises to go. Yes, Moses, I will go with you. Uh, But Moses is still traumatized. Moses is still traumatized by recent events. He's traumatized by what he witnessed when he goes down to the base of the mountain, sees the people who so quickly forsook the Lord and were worshiping uh, idols. He's traumatized by that. He's looking forward to the war that stands in front of him, lays in front of him. He's also thinking i got to lead a sinful people into battle against formidable enemies. And I have to try to lead them to be the holy people of God. So on one hand, i got the sinful people called to holiness. On the other hand, i got the holy God of heaven. And here I am stuck in the middle of it. And he already told God that he was completely inadequate for any of this calling. Remember when he was called to go into Egypt. So Moses is really between a rock and a hard place. And I, I thought, well, this seems kind of interesting because... At one point, Israel is stuck between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, completely desperate. And I think Moses feels the same way right now as an individual. He's stuck between the sinful people uh, who are called to holiness and the holy God. And here he is in the middle of it, just feeling like, what in the world am I going to do? So that's Moses' state of mind. That's where our passage picks up in Exodus 33, verse 18. Let's read it. Moses, as an act of desperation needing some type of assurance from the Lord that he would indeed accompany his people into war. Moses needing some type of assurance from God that, God, you're going to enable me to lead these people and that you are going to go with us. He says, please show me your glory. And he said, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name. The Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. And so what, what, what is this? Well, the Lord is saying to Moses, I will give you a revelation of who I am, a glimpse of my glory. You can't see me face to face. You'll die. Uh, But he's basically saying, I'm going to allow you to see the afterglow of my glory as a measure of assurance. But think of Moses' state of mind again here, already feeling completely inadequate, uh, feeling as if he's alone, feeling as if he doesn't have the power or the ability to execute what God has called him to do. But God here is going to give Moses exactly 
the encouragement that he needs. Exactly the encouragement that he needs. Because this is not just an experience to see a bright light, okay? This is not just an experience to see the afterglow of, 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 of God's glory in the sense of uh, some overpowering illumination, okay? That's not what's happening here. What's important is what the Lord says. And so in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5, it says this. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaim the name of the Lord. This is God revealing his own character. This is God choosing how he's going to uh, uh, characterize uh, uh, his person. These, this is a collection, we could say attributes, you could say names, whatever you want to call it, uh, but this is a collection of uh, character qualities or attributes of the Lord that the Lord himself has chosen to reveal to Moses. So it's a pretty... Amazing passage. So he proclaims the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we've taken the time to set the context for this passage because there's no better way to learn about the character of God and the nature of our Heavenly Father than to hear it from the lips of God Himself. The Lord provides this revelation to Moses at a time when Moses needed tender assurances of the goodness of God. Have you been there? Have you been at a place in your life where things are so difficult and you feel so inadequate and you feel so unworthy? They're saying, Lord, I just need some assurance that you're good. I need some assurance that you're merciful, that you're gracious, that you're forgiving. This is where Moses is. He's overcome by his own weakness. He's overcome by the sinfulness of the people. For this reason, the aspects of divine character that God chooses to reveal to Moses that he magnifies before him are all relevant to the human condition and very relevant to you and I. They're intended to bring Moses comfort and insurance, assurance as he grapples with his own sense of unworthiness and inabilities. This is Moses' and our Heavenly Father showing tender compassion in a time of need. It's also, again, written for us, serve the same purpose that it served for Moses, saves us, serves the same purpose for any of us this morning who are painfully aware of our own sin and frailties. How often will you and I need those assurances? This is a passage that we can return to often. This is a passage we can return to often to receive comfort, assurance. It's this type of comfort that Jesus spoke of when he said in the his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are... Those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we come to the end of ourselves and say, Lord, I can't do this. Lord, I'm weak. Lord, I'm sinful. Lord, I'm unworthy. When we get to that point, that's that mourning. When we get to that point, you'll be comforted. Moses was at a point of mourning. His own weakness, his own inability, the sinfulness of the people. He, he, he doesn't, he's not matched for the task that's before him. But you know what? God gives him comfort. We're going to consider how God reveals himself here. We're not going to try to separate all these things into different attributes and so on, but because they're really all trying to communicate something very similar. But what we do learn is that our Heavenly Father, 
according to his own revelation to Moses, is merciful. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. God's mercy speaks of his sympathy toward the suffering of mankind and his propensity to relieve it. This includes suffering due to affliction all around us. It also includes suffering due to our own sin. In either case, God is moved by man's fallen condition. He's sympathetic to our suffering. All of the aspects of God's character that he reveals to Moses here are designed to reinforce those same themes. You can see why this revelation would have been especially helpful to Moses, why it would have been a special comfort to him during the events that we just covered. When the Lord called him to lead the children of Israel, it made him deeply aware of his frailties. When the people rebelled against God and made a golden calf, it made Moses fearful that their sinfulness would make it impossible for them to continue as the people of God. The Lord's declaration of his mercifulness was meant to assure Moses that his frailties and the people's sinfulness would be met with divine patience. This is why the Lord further elaborates upon his mercy by assuring Moses that he is, what does it say? Slow to anger. He is slow to anger. Although sinful humanity is alienated from the holy God, he is long-suffering. He is forbearing. He is patient. He is merciful. Because he is sympathetic to the plight of humanity, he withholds judgment that our sin deserves. This is true of all of humanity. I mean, that's the very fact. I mean, all the way back to Noah with the rainbow. What, what was that? Well, that was a covenant saying that because man is sinful from his very birth, uh, I'm never going to wipe out uh, the world again with a flood. I'm going to allow human history to continue, even though man is worthy of judgment. But also, this is all especially true for us who have entered into covenant with whom the Lord has entered covenant through Jesus Christ. For us, he's not only held back his own wrath against sin, but he poured that wrath out upon his son who willingly bore that wrath on our behalf. Why would he do this? Because he knows the severity of our sinful condition and he's merciful towards us. Again, how angry, I mean, how cruel is it when an angry father causes his kids to be in a constant state of fear and insecurity? At any given moment, not knowing where they stand with dad, the fear they have of their father is not born out of respect, but raw self-preservation. When our Heavenly Father assures us that he is slow to anger, he's doing us an incredible service. He's letting us know that when we sin, we need never cower in fear or become anxious over how we, he might respond to our sin or failure. Instead, what? He is giving us tender assurance that he knows our weakness and is perfectly patient towards it. This is important. I used to say it this way. It's important to note that God's patience with our sin or mercy towards our sinful condition is not the downplaying of sin. It's not the excusing of sin. It's not the foregoing of justice. Instead, this is God's patient extension of love in light of what God knows about our sinful nature. For Moses and the Israelites in the Old Testament, this mercy was anticipatory. It looked forward to the coming of Jesus. God withheld, held his wrath at bay, waiting for the day when Jesus Christ would come. We learn that in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. 
For us, however, the same mercy is predicated upon what Jesus has already accomplished by dying for us on the cross. Because Jesus has already borne God's wrath towards our sin. And because God has graciously counted that payment as if it's our own. All that is left for us is what? No condemnation, but tender relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's not a downplaying of sin. It's not a foregoing of justice because God's justice will be had. But he provides his own son so that his son bears that justice on our behalf. But like Moses, our appreciation for this mercy, our appreciation for the mercy and patience of God is amplified when we are deeply moved by the reality of our own sin and weakness. And there may be some like that here this morning. I don't know what you're going through in your life. I don't know what your spiritual life looks like, but maybe this describes you. Going through a season of life where you feel that you are overcome by your own sin, by your own inability, by your own weakness. You're about ready to give up. Uh, God couldn't love me uh, because I just keep failing him. I keep being unfaithful to him. So is he going to be faithful to me? That's what's going on in your mind. But when we are most aware of our unworthiness and inability, that's when we ought to become the most thankful for God's mercy. We see an awesome example of this in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is like the practical application of Exodus 34. The revelation we see in Exodus 34, the psalmist in Psalm 103 makes personal application. So the psalmist in Psalm 103 is going through something we don't know. This is David. We, we don't know exactly what he's going through at this time. But as he meditates upon his experience in the nature of God, his mind goes to Exodus 34 and the revelation that God gave to Moses. And then he says, this is how this applies to my circumstance. So this is helpful to us because we see Exodus 34, but then we see practical application. So that's going to help us to make the same application. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and is gone, and his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
Again, we're not sure of the events that led to the writing of this psalm, but it's clear that David is writing to celebrate what? The mercy of God. This is intended to lead God's people to praise God for His mercy and forgiveness. If God, quote-unquote, dealt with us according to our sins or repaid us according to our iniquities, we would what? We would all suffer eternally. So vast is the gulf between the holiness of God and our sinfulness that no one could ever bear the consequence of their sin and live. Thankfully, however, according to the psalmist, what? God does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities, but instead he does what? He extends mercy. Although the psalmist in Psalm 103 experienced the Lord's mercy, again, that's a mercy that anticipated the coming of Jesus. We have even greater reason to rejoice because we become the recipients of Jesus' finished work. Consider how Paul expressed the magnitude of God's mercy in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is a wonderful passage talking about the mercy of God, but also really speaking of our adoption Because we've been adopted and united with God's only begotten Son, what we have become heirs together of what? The immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us. And when did God do this for us? While we were dead in our trespasses and sins. While we were dead, He shows us mercy. He rescues us from our sin when we are entirely incapable of rectifying our own situation, completely incapable of moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. More than this, he what? He adopts us, unites us with Jesus, gives us an inheritance. Far from dealing with us according to our sins, he has dealt with us according to his own love and mercy. As a result, you and I are freed from the punishment that we deserve and blessed with the blessings which only Jesus deserves. That's mercy. According to Psalm 103, verse 11, what does it say? It says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. His steadfast love. And then he says what? He says that he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west. I mean, you go as far as you can to the east, and that's infinite. You go as far as you can to the west, and that's also infinite. Now, if you go all the way north, you're going to reach the North Pole, right? I mean, the the idea is that maybe there's an end there, but to go from east to the west uh, really speaks of infinity, That means that uh, he has taken our sins and completely removed them. He's not only taken our sins, but he's taken the eternal consequence of our sin and completely removed it. The burden of our sin has been completely lifted. In other words, we need never fear eternal condemnation. He's totally erased our sin debt. We need never cower in fear. We need never wonder whether the Lord, how the Lord might respond to our sin. We need never doubt our standing before God. As Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, as the psalmist in Psalm 103 
talks about God's mercy. First of all, he hearkens back in verse 8. Where have you heard verse 8 before? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, he is applying what God revealed to Moses. We know that because in verse 7, he says he made his ways known to Moses. Follows that up with quoting God's revelation to Moses on the mountain and it makes practical application. Now, when David in Psalm 103 chooses then to describe God on the basis of the mercy and the steadfast love that he shows us, what picture does he choose in verse 13? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And now you know when we think about God as Heavenly Father, why we go to Exodus 34. Because this is God himself revealing himself as our Heavenly Father, and what he wants to focus on is his mercy and his steadfast love. And why does God deal with us this way? Why does God simply not just hold us to account and say, listen, you're a sinner, you must pay the penalty for your sin? Why is he not all just about justice? Because that's what we claim we are, right? We're all about fairness. Why is God not just about fairness and justice? Why is he instead one who pours out mercy and grace? And and why is this all about his steadfast love? Because of verse 14 of Psalm 103. What does it say? For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. We can say that about mankind in general. He knows the human condition. We can also say that as individuals. When Moses comes to God and says, Lord, I can't do this. I'm not up to the task. Do you think he was informing God of anything? God knew his frame. God knew his frailty. God knew his weakness. God knew his sinfulness. When we're feeling weak and unable before the Lord. He knows our frame. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows even your sin and even the habits of sin that you've developed. He's well aware of our sinfulness and weakness. And it's for that reason that he refuses to deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Why? Well, because according to Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one could endure God's justice, but God as our loving Heavenly Father instead pours out mercy. So pervasive is our sin and so corrupt our natural state that if God dealt with us only according to his justice, none could live. Instead, he's merciful. He extends forgiveness. Psalm 103 is written by a man who's been thinking deeply about the mercy of God. Perhaps recently sinned, perhaps recently sinned and then repented, and has been overwhelmed by the reality that God has forgiven him, whatever the circumstances, we find him celebrating what? The steadfast love of God. Verse 4, verse 8, verse 11, verse 17, they all deal with the steadfast love of God. What is that? What is his steadfast love? We say steadfast, well, that's consistent, sure, consistent love, okay. It's actually a term that refers uh, to God's covenant love, his hesed love, his covenant love. It's hard to translate into English. It it really speaks of God's, again, covenantal love, his faithfulness, his kindness, his goodness, his mercy, his love, his compassion, and his disposition to always show those things to those with whom he's covenantally committed. I told you it's hard to translate into English. There's not one word to capture God's steadfast love. This is God's disposition to pour out his goodness upon those with whom he has committed himself covenantally. That's his steadfast love. God has lovingly chosen to commit himself to in that type of relationship 
one in which He bestows His goodness upon us, even though we don't deserve it. When we're weak, our compassionate Heavenly Father is sympathetic to our weaknesses. By the way, when you get to the New Testament and you see that Jesus is a perfect embodiment of the Father, and what does it say about Jesus as our high priest? He's sympathetic to our weaknesses. When we are continually, when we continually prove ourselves to be undeserving, He shows grace. When we give into sinfulness, He extends mercy. When we find ourselves faithless, He is forever faithful. This is an incredible love. According to Exodus 34, it says what? That God is abounding in steadfast love. So, as we consider that the Lord is a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, we should really be able to come right alongside the psalmist of Psalm 103 and share those feelings of deep gratitude towards our Heavenly Father. As we consider that God has promised not to deal with us according to our sins, but according to His covenant love, that should lead us to cry with the psalmist, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Again, none of this is because we're worthy of it at all. This is all because Jesus Christ is worthy and God has entered into covenant with us through him. Well, as we come to a conclusion here, we've learned that God is merciful and he's gracious towards our weakness, towards our frailty, towards even our sin. So then what should we do when we do sin? What should we do when we do sin? Now, I told you that this is prepared as a lesson for new believers. Some form of this is going to be in growth matters, maybe lesson three or something, when, when somebody gets baptized, I want you to go through growth matters, and this is somewhat of what they're going to learn. And, and some of you are going to go through growth matters who have been Christians for a long time, so that you can bring that new believer through this very lesson. So I hope you've been paying attention. Uh, but what do we do then when we sin in light of what we know about God? Do we, uh, no big deal, God's merciful. Is that our attitude? Well, we're going to turn to one last passage and we'll be done. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. Just in light of everything we've learned about God as our Heavenly Father, what do we do after we sin? After, after all, being saved does not mean that you no longer sin. In fact, John told us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we actually make God to be a liar and his word is not in us. So how should we think about ourselves, our sin, and our heavenly Father when we succumb to our sinful passions? Well, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, his word's not in us. According to John, now listen, who am I talking to right now? Who's John talking to? Talking to those who have been adopted into the family of God. You've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe that he is the Son of God who lived a perfect life and died for you on the cross. He bore God's wrath towards your sin. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns. He's going to return a day at a time of the Father's choosing. You believe that. You place your faith in him as the only Savior and as your rightful Lord. That's you. God granted you that faith. He's adopted you into his family. You've been granted all the rights and privileges of any child of God. You're now connected together, joined together with every other believer. That's you, okay? So you're a child of God, adopted in his family. He's your heavenly father. That's who we're talking about. That's who John 
is talking to. If that's not you, well, that invitation is open to you to become a child of God through faith in Jesus. But this is what John says. And so the first thing he says we ought to do is what? In verse 9, confess our sins. Confess our sins. Pray. Pray to the Heavenly Father. Pray to your Heavenly Father, knowing that He is sympathetic to your weaknesses, that He knows your frame, and confess your sin. Confess that you know you've offended Him through your sinful actions, attitudes, affections, whatever it might be. This type of confession goes beyond just a mere mental acknowledgement that you've done something wrong. But there is a heart's desire to forsake it. You're not always going to be successful at that. There's you, sometimes you have that desire to forsake sin, and you do, but then you go right back to it. But you have a heart's desire to forsake that sin. You confess that to the Father. That's the first thing that you do. Considering everything that we've learned about God thus far, we know that we can come to Him with honest, vulnerable confession, without fear, because what He already knows that we're sinners, and He's already we, we know he's, he's sympathetic towards us as sinners. He knows that we're weak, still subject to human passions, and so he's perfectly patient towards us when we fail. So, you know, have you had a situation where you had to approach your earthly dad and tell him that you did something wrong? Shaking in your boots? You don't have to feel this way when you come to God because you're not informing him of anything. And so you simply express to God your heart's desire to forsake that, your acknowledgement that this is not right, uh, and uh, Lord, please forgive me for violating uh, your holiness and for not living for your glory. So you confess it. We know that he's going to be perfectly patient towards us. One of the mistakes, and this is a theme that I come back to over and over again because I think that it's a, a very common problem. One of the mistakes that even well-meaning Christians sometimes make is to avoid going to God in prayer after they've sinned because they feel unworthy. They feel unworthy to approach God. And this seems like very pious, Oh, I can't come to God in prayer because I'm not worthy to enter his presence. Well, when are you worthy to enter his presence? There's a reason why when we come to God the Father in prayer, we always come in Jesus' name. Because he's the only worthy one. He's the one that made the way into the Holy of Holies. We're only there because he's there. And so we ever have a sense that we're in the presence of God or have a right to access God through prayer because we are worthy, we're wrong. And so to feel as if we cannot come to God after we've sinned because we're unworthy is really to forget about Jesus. It's really to put the focus on us instead upon his son. And some then believe that if we just let enough time pass, then maybe I can do enough good things where I'll feel worthy to approach God in prayer. And that's just blatant legalism. When we sin, we naturally feel shame and remorse. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's sometimes a wonderful indication that we're growing in our love for God and His holiness and developing an increasing distaste for sin. However, when we feel that way, it should not cause us to run from God. It should cause us to run to God. Our feelings of unworthiness and shame should cause us to throw ourselves at the feet of our merciful Heavenly Father. And that's really an act of faith. It's saying, Lord, I believe what you said about yourself. I believe that you're merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I am appropriating what you have revealed about yourself by faith. And so though I know I'm unworthy, I'm appealing to what you have told me about your character. That's a wonderful act of faith. In this way, the sorrow of our sin does not lead us to depression or despondency, but it leads us to worship. And so we confess our sin. That's number one. Next, when we sin, we should not only confess our sin, but we should trust the character of God which I just stole my own thunder. But uh, 
It says in 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins for what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. John would have us immediately set our thoughts upon the character of God. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Take your minds off of your sin and put your minds on the character of God. Some people have a, a habit of wallowing in self-pity after they sin. It's like some sort of emotional self-flagellation. I'm going to make myself suffer until I feel like I've, I've done enough penance or something. These are those who are focusing on the severity of their sin more than on the goodness of God. They're living in the shadow of their wickedness instead of basking in the light of the, of the Lord's mercy. When we sin, we should remind ourselves that God is faithful, John says, to forgive us our sins. That is what? Faithful. He's abounding in steadfast love. Through the new covenant, he's committed himself to forever treat us as his beloved children. His covenant love is never in short supply. We should never fear that we've exhausted God's mercy or come to the end of his patience. And so John says he's faithful. John would also have us dwell upon his justice. And you say, well, wait a second. The last thing that I want to dwell upon is the justice of God when I've sinned. Because, you know, if I receive justice, I'm in trouble. I don't want to think about his justice. I just want to think about his mercy. But John says, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Well, why would he invoke justice at a time like this? We just want mercy. Because justice, when linked to forgiveness, is a wonderful thing. John says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is a reminder that God's justice has already been satisfied. Because of Jesus, the time has now come where the Lord can forgive sins and still be just. His justice has been satisfied. When he poured out his wrath upon his son, his justice was completely uh, taken care of so that now when we come, we can come with confidence. He's faithful and just to forgive us. He's not violating his own character. He's not violating his own justice. Because Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf, satisfied God's wrath towards our sin, the Father can freely forgive us while also remaining perfectly just. Now, after considering or after confessing our sin, after considering the character of God, what do we do? Well, we remind ourselves that the product now of this is what? He says that God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember Psalm 103? Far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Just like pure, clean water might wash away filth, the Lord cleanses us from unrighteousness. This means that after we confess our sins, we can be confident that we're pure in God's sight. Now, it's important to note, in everything that we just saw there, nothing that John offers us as a comfort is at all based upon our feelings. On the contrary, this all flows from what we know about the character of God and what he's accomplished for us through his son. This takes the sense of forgiveness, again, out of the realm of feelings and puts it into the realm of faith, into the realm of faith. This means that we confess our sin to God, we may not feel cleansed. Have you, have you prayed for forgiveness and got up from that prayer and just felt, well, I don't feel any different? I, I still feel shame. I still feel remorse. I still feel a failure. But you know it's a matter of faith to say to your feelings, submit yourself to what I know about God through the word of God. So we take the revelation of God and his promises and say to my emotions, submit to that and not the other way around. My responsibility is to embrace 
this forgiveness by faith, even when I don't feel like it. And again, in this way, faith drives my feelings and feelings don't drive my faith. So summarize. When you sin, immediately confess that sin to God. Don't wait until you feel worthy because you're not worthy. And if you feel worthy, then maybe that's a bigger problem than the initial sin. As you pray, remember that God is your merciful Heavenly Father who's entered into covenant with you through Jesus and has promised to show you His steadfast love. Remember that He's sympathetic towards your sin and weakness. Banish any fears of condemnation, knowing that Jesus has borne the penalty and has turned away the wrath of God. Then, by faith, accept that God has fully forgiven you. Accept that you are cleansed in His sight from all unrighteousness. And then when you're done praying and you still don't feel worthy, enter back to your feelings what you know about God and his promises. You know that he has forgiven you for Jesus' sake, that you're not condemned. Then as a matter of faith-filled worship, simply thank God. Thank him for his mercy. Thank him for your forgiveness. Live out your thankfulness through service. Not in order to earn a favor, but as a product of his favor. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 He appeals to what in order to motivate us to serve the Lord? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then he goes on to say what that looks like. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying, listen, on the basis of the mercy of God that he's shown you, give your entire life to him. Serve him. Don't be like the world. Be transformed. Why? Not to earn his favor, but because you know you are in his favor, uh, simply as a product of his mercy. So in conclusion, I don't know what your upbringing has been like with your, heavenly, with your earthly father. Don't allow that at all to shape your view of your Heavenly Father. God Himself has revealed to us who He is and what He's like. And He's done this for a very specific reason. Just like He spoke to Moses to give him wonderful comfort and assurance that even in the face of our sinfulness and frailty, God is faithful, God is slow to anger, God is patient, God is forgiving. This is true for all those who belong to Him. Listen, if you're a child of God... You're absolutely secure in your relationship, and you should never have any doubts as to your standing before your Heavenly Father. Now, some baby, well, that's just going to cause individuals to decide to live however they want to live. Was that the effect of Moses? Was that the effect on the psalmist of Psalm 103? Is, is, that, is that Paul's indication of Romans 12? Not at all. If you're a genuine child of God, understanding God's steadfast love, keeping it for thousands, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If you um, take time to meditate upon that, that leads you to what? Not further rebellion, not further sin, but it leads you to an overwhelming sense of love and gratitude and thankfulness that then turns into what? A life of faith-filled service. That's the goal and that's the intention. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we believe that you are the holy God of heaven and that you are perfectly just and righteous. We believe that you are so pure that you cannot even look upon evil. We understand that if justice were to be had, just raw justice, that no one could stand before you. So Lord, we don't in any way, as we dwell upon your character here this morning, seek to downplay your righteousness or your holiness. 
but we also recognize that when you chose to reveal your name to Moses in your wonderful love and mercy, you set forth the reality that you are sympathetic towards us. You know that we're sinners. You know that if it were a matter of justice, we wouldn't stand, couldn't stand before you. And so, Lord, you've chosen to emphasize your mercy, your steadfast love, your forgiveness, your covenant commitment to us. So, Lord, we thank you for that grace that you've extended to us. Help us as those who have entered, uh, with whom you have entered covenant through Jesus, to recognize our standing before you. We believe this morning that you have adopted us into your family, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. You've granted us all the rights and privileges of your children. We believe that you have committed yourself to us as our covenant God, as our Heavenly Father. And so when we don't feel that way, help us to submit our feelings to your word. Help us when we sin to deal with that sin properly in light of what we know about you and the nature of the relationship you have with us. If there's any here this morning who are your children, who are... Uh, feel overcome by their sin, who feel as if they can't make spiritual progress, I pray that you would assure them the way that you assured Moses of your character, that you're gracious, that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding in steadfast love. Help them to get their eyes off themselves and their own sin and put them upon you. Help them to stop uh, dwelling upon their own unworthiness and to set their minds on the worthiness of Jesus. And then, Lord, this morning we pray for those who are not yet Christians. We pray that they could see their need for salvation, that they place their faith in Jesus, and that they too would be adopted into your family. And I pray that you would assure them with the same assurance that you gave Moses as to your character as their heavenly father. And Lord, we know that you'll grant them your Holy Spirit, who will cry in them, Abba, Father, testifying to their spirit that they are the children of God. So we pray that you'd do that this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us. Pray you'd help us then to go our ways not uh, looking lightly upon sin, uh, but understanding that it's a violation of your holiness, understanding that it's contrary to our calling. Help us to take sin very seriously, yet when we fall into it, not to delve into despondency, but to take that sin to you and to bask in your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.